Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. The other aspects of God that nobody likes to talk about. I originally wanted to title it The Other Side of God that nobody wants to talk about, but I I found it, I got like a check in my spirit because it's really not another side of God. God is not two-faced. God isn't bipolar. He's not maniacal. He's not super happy one day and then super angry the next day. God is very stable. I think I need to establish this before I move on to anything else that I'm not talking about another side of God that, you know, sometimes if he just wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, he wakes up angry and then all of a sudden he's not out to bless. He's out to strike people down with lightning bolts and thunder. That's not what I'm talking about. That's why I initially wanted to title this the other side of God, but I changed it to the other aspect of God that nobody likes to talk about. The word aspect means feature, something that one is defined by. There are many aspects of God. God is love. God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17 says that, that God doesn't just love, God is love himself. The Bible says that God, Jehovah Rapha, God is healing. God doesn't just heal, God is healing. Those are aspects of who God is. The Bible actually says that the many aspects of God would be made known to us by the manifold wisdom of God. So the wisdom of God is the Word of God. When we study the Word, we start to see the aspects of who God is. And I want to make this clear. We are not, our, our, we're not Christians because we've come up with our own con- concept of who God is. That's where people get into error. They, they use their mind. They try to devise an idea of who God is. We, they try to almost add in their creativity in coming up with this perspective of God. That's not the way we as Christians are to find out or discover God more and more in, in, in fullness. Remember that God, the fullness of God was made Uh, was put in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwelt fully in bodily flesh, in Christ Jesus. So when we look at Christ, and remember Jesus was the Word made flesh, when we look at Christ in the Gospels, and when we study the Word, we are coming to a better knowledge of Jesus Christ, of God the Father, of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity. So our, our guide in life... Our, uh, the unraveling of who God is, is not in us thinking long and hard uh, and, and just devising or pondering. I wonder what God is and just looking at nature. Yes, certain things of nature can reveal God. As we see in Romans 1, the Bible says that his, um, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen through the things that he has made. However, the word of God is the ultimate authority on the unraveling of who God is. And so a lot of times in North America especially there is this un really this this um idolatry that takes place that is not even intended. Some people have walked into idolatry without even willingly doing it because they haven't been taught that God is not to be fashioned by your mind. I have to read this before. This is, this is a scripture that keeps popping into my spirit that's really going to make clear what I'm trying to say here. Listen to this. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching at Athens, and this is what he says. He says, I perceive, men of Athens, that you are very religious. 
For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. So Athens had devised different objects of worship, different ways of thinking about God or different, um, different ideas of God. And they had put up many altars all throughout Athens. When Paul saw that, it disturbed him. And he found an altar that was given over with the inscription to an unknown God. And this is what he says. The one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that people should seek for the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are the offspring of God. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not, listen to this, verse 29, Acts 17, 29. Since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature is as gold or silver or stone or something shamed, shaped by art or man's devising. We are not to think of the divine nature as something shaped by man's devising, something we can create. Too many people have created their own God by neglecting the word and just thinking about who God is. I mean, I've been, I told you this the last few broadcasts. I'm on TikTok now. I'm on Instagram uh, reels and I've been posting and some of the posts have gone uh, somewhat viral in the sense, you know, at least at the capacity that I'm at right now. And I've had people comment all kinds of crazy things. Well, I don't, I posted one thing saying that unless you preach to people, people won't get saved. And then people coming out of the woodwork, no, I don't think that God needs you to preach to get people saved. God can move sovereignly on people. They, he doesn't need your assistance. Really? Is that why when God wanted to move on Cornelius and his household, he, he sent an angel to then tell Cornelius not the gospel, but to go and fetch for Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner so that he could hear words from Peter's mouth? Is that why when um, Peter on the day of Pentecost, he got up and as the tongues of fire were on his head, he just prayed, God move sovereignly? Or did Peter begin to preach? The Bible says that Peter said, by my mouth, God used to preach salvation to the Gentiles. Through my mouth, God opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. So God uses, his, uses, his, uses people's mouth to get the message of the cross over to people. The Bible says it's through the message, the foolishness of preaching the message of the cross that people are saved. And so because people, they just, oh, I don't like that, or I, I've never heard that before because I've never opened up my Bible. They fashioned and devised their own view of God. They have personalized their God to fit their own finite minds when the Bible is very clear that God's ways are higher than our ways his thoughts are higher than our thoughts but the good news is is through the spirit and the word of God God makes known to us freely the ways and the thoughts of God God doesn't want to be foreign to you God wants to show himself to you and not just a part of him not just the love part not just the mercy part not just the grace part but what I want to talk about today the other aspect of God that people do not talk about is the part that God is the God of vengeance God is the God of 
of, of revenge. God is the God of vengeance. God is the God of judgment. He is a God of justice. And um, I'm going to read this out of 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord. The word holy means in a class by himself, set apart, totally different from everything else. Nobody is holy like the Lord. Nobody, that's why the Bible says he dwells in inapproachable light. The Bible says he is the only potentate. Nobody can attain to his power. Nobody can attain to his wisdom. Nobody can attain to his, his greatness. Nobody to, can attain to his height in the heaven. He is the most high God. He's wiser than the wisest. He's stronger than the strongest. He's greater than the greatest. He's higher than the highest. He's more powerful than the most powerful. He is the Lord, and besides Him, there is no other. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very arrogantly or proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren have borne seven, and she who has, who has many children has become feeble. Listen to verse 6. This is the Bible, 1 Samuel 2, 6, inspired of the Holy Ghost. Listen to what the Bible says. This is Hannah praying. Verse 6, the Lord kills, and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he brings up. He makes poor and he makes rich, he brings low, and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to seat them amongst the princes and make them inherit the throne of his glory. So a lot of people have interpreted that to be that God is unpredictable. That God at any time is going to strike you and you just got to be like Job. Oh, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I went in at length about the life of Job in uh, last week's broadcast. I did it on Tuesday. What about Job? It was frozen on YouTube momentarily. It didn't go past the 12-minute mark, but I thank God. Yesterday, I checked it. It's been fixed. I don't know how. Obviously, it was the hand of God. You can watch the whole video in its entirety on YouTube now. But in that video, I went through it and showed you that certain statements Job, I went through the book of Job and showed you that certain statements that Job made in the Bible were actually, he was rebuked for them at the end of his life. He was, or at the end of the ordeal that lasted 18 months. At the end of it, God actually said, put a hand to your mouth. So the whole, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God didn't take Job's health. God didn't take Job's prosperity. God didn't, God didn't take anything from Job. The Bible says it was the devil who went forth from the presence of the Lord and did all those things. God allowed it, but we find out in that video that I made, which you should go, you should go back and watch why God allowed those things. I'm not going to get in it right now. But people take 1 Samuel 2 to be like this uh, scapegoat for everything that's wrong in life and that God is ultimately unpredictable and we should just be thankful for whatever comes our way. It must be God's will. That's not the context of 1 Samuel 2. Hannah is talking about how those that do wickedly and refuse to repent and relent, God kills to those that are pursuing him in righteousness, to those that draw, are driven 
to God and are panting after God as a deer panted for the water creek, God makes a liar. The Bible says he brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Bible says in verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. Those are the people that are like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God. Ble- uh, for they shall, sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's not saying, Samuel, uh, Hannah, 1 Samuel 2 is not saying that God at any moment can turn off all his covenant promises and start striking people dead whether they've sought him or not. Hannah is simply saying, God is not just the one that makes a life. He's not just the one that lifts up the humble. He's not just the one that the Bible says, those that are are humble, he raises up. He's also the one that James 5 says, but the proud, he resists. The Bible says in Psalm 34, the Lord turns his eyes on the righteous, but his hand is against those that do wickedly. So this is a total Not another side, but an aspect of God that has been ignored in a lot of churches, especially North America. We love to preach this candy store version of God that everything's sweet, everything's nice, everything's great, everything is, is, uh, he's all flowers and daisies. And that ultimately there's, God would never, God would never do anything like that. Oh, that was the God of the Old Testament. He's changed now. Let me tell you something. God hasn't reworked himself. God hasn't, um, a lot of people think that God is like rebranding himself in the New Testament. A lot of people think that he has reevaluated the things he did back then and he really, you know, he's grown in wisdom since and he said, you know, maybe there's another way. God isn't like that. God isn't um, changing his MO in order to fit the time and cultures of today God isn't rebranding himself so he can become more palatable and he's kind of left the vengeance stuff of the Old Testament and uh, you actually don't see anything in the New Testament where God actually strikes people no actually you see it and I'm going to show you in the New Testament scriptures examples of that but I, I want you to understand that God is the same yesterday today and forevermore Malachi 3 6 he is the Lord God he changes not so God didn't suddenly turn that part off that he had in the Old Testament and he no longer functions that way in the New and in this New Covenant. No, he absolutely does. Luke 18, Jesus says this. So let's sk- skip over to the New Testament. Luke chapter 18. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Luke 18 verse 1. He spoke a parable to them saying that men ought always to pray and never to lose heart. And verse 2, he says, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, nor did he regard man. Now there was in that city a widow, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. She was being oppressed. She was being afflicted. There was some unjust deed done to her by a wicked, ungodly person. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I don't fear God nor regard man, I will avenge her because this widow troubles me, lest by her continual coming to me she wearies me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Listen to this Luke chapter 18, 7. This is New Testament. Shall God not avenge his own elect? avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them i tell you that he will avenge them speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he really find faith like this on the earth i i felt stirred up in my spirit 
to do this broadcast today because I know that in my own nation of Canada, there have been wicked people that have risen up, that have partnered with hell, have joined hand in hand with Satan's schemes, his vices and his plans. Just like God, when he wants to get something done in our generation, he anoints people to get the work done. When the devil wants to get something done in a generation, he has his unholy, wicked, evil anointing that he puts on people to get the work done. And when people join hands with him and partner with him in doing that, they have left the category of simply being sinners, they have joined a new category that the Bible declares as wicked people. There is a great difference between being a sinner and being a wicked person. A sinner is someone that is doing the drugs. They can't break free from it. They can't stop doing it. The wicked one is the one who's working overtime to get drugs smuggled into the city, into the nation, and then for his own monetary pursuits, he is pumping those drugs through the streets to get people hooked on them, knowing that the more hooked people he has on his drugs and on whatever paraphernalia that he is pumping through the streets, the more wealthy he becomes. That's why the Bible says money... Not money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, all sorts of evil. People have said that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. If money was the root of all evil, you shouldn't have a single penny in your bank account because if that's evil, I don't want anything. I don't even want to touch it. Money itself is not inherently evil, but the love of money is because it drives people to partner with Satan to grow their wealth. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness one of the temptations he went through was what jesus um, satan came to jesus and showed him all the glories of the kingdom in a moment of time and he said if you'll bow to me i'll give you all the riches all the wealth of the kingdoms they've been given unto me remember when adam sinned he he forfeited the rights of dominion on the earth. Satan assumed dominion on the earth. And the Bible calls him the God of the systems of this world. And so he has certain level of authority over the financial systems of this world. He has a certain level of, of authority over the wealth distribution in this world. And so Satan didn't wrongfully say, all this has been given to me and I'll give it to you, Jesus, if you'll bow to me. He actually spoke in truth. If it wasn't true, then Jesus wouldn't have been tempted to bow. And the Bible calls it the temptation of Christ. And he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So G Jesus didn't contest that statement. He actually by not contesting it, validated that statement. Or else he would have just said, that's a lie, Satan, all that belongs to God. He didn't contest because the system of this world truly has come into the hands of Satan. And so the love of money in people gets people to partner with Satan so that they can latch on to that system and increase their wealth. And so everything you're seeing done on planet Earth today, the wickedness that is trying to uh, prevail in society and in the last 18 months with whatever's been going on I'm trying to shy away from certain words just because of the YouTube algorithm I know it won't let this video kick off you know who cares COVID has brought a has brought a lot of wickedness to, to light a lot of wicked people are having first of all they're being brought to light they're being revealed as what they really were all the, all along that they've been in partnership with the devil this whole time. 
And you can see that because of the measures that are being used to bring people into affliction, bring people into oppression, bring people into control. People, men and women having to forfeit their own uh, bodily body sovereignty, the sovereignty over their own body, their own bodily autonomy, their own rights to govern the choices of what they put in their body, all of that is going out the door. And there's wicked, oppressive systems that are being set up by wicked men that have joined with hell to bring people under this global control. And if the wicked, see a lot of people think Christianity is just doing nothing, let the wicked just run through society, trample over you, and just say, oh Lord, we just, you know, we'll just take it if this is persecution. A lot of people think that's what Christianity is. It's just getting slapped around by the wicked and just taking it and being happy as you take it. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not rolling over while the devil wins. Christianity is understanding that as long as we the church are on the earth, we're in charge. But until the church does something and prays, nothing will get done on the earth. That's why the Bible says this woman, Jesus was talking about prayer in Luke chapter 18. And he, he started to relate that prayer is what actually releases God's, avenge, uh, God's vengeance on the deeds of the ungodly and the wicked. That without the church, the body of Christ, which is the salt of the earth, if we don't pray against the deeds of the ungodly, against the deeds of the wicked, those things are going to continue to prevail and to overtake and to, 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 to dominate the world. If we do nothing, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. My nation, we had two pastors arrested in the last week. One of them is a friend of mine. Pastor Phil Hutchins out in New Brunswick, Canada, got arrested for opening his church because he refused to implement a vax passport system that would have people that weren't vaccinated not allowed to come into his church. And so because of that, he got arrested and he's still in jail. He's coming. He's going to be on trial October 22nd, this Friday. And then yesterday, another pastor in Manitoba got arrested. And there's other pastors in the last 18 months that have been arrested. And then there's Pastor Rodney Howard Brown, the first one that got arrested out in Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida, that uh, just for keeping his church open. CNN, MSNBC, they all pumped his face, reviled him. Because he said, no, I believe, first of all, in the States, there's the Constitution of the United States that allows for people to worship God freely and government cannot infringe upon that God-given right. And so he acted on the Constitution, which all these measures in the last 18 months do not override the Constitution. They're not, they don't override the Constitution. And because a lot of Americans don't know the Constitution, unfortunately, especially people my age and younger, they're so ignorant to the Constitution, the thing that people died on D-Day storming the beaches of Normandy to destroy the Hitler-esque program that was trying to uh, break its way out of Europe and come to North America. People that shed their blood to win freedom for America and Canadians too, to win our freedoms because they're ignorant of that. They're so free. I mean, I've heard CNN's uh, Don Lemon, he, he, he said it on national television that uh, people are so caught up with freedom. There has to come a point where your freedom takes a back seat and you need to do things for the greater good. Are you kidding me? Benjamin Franklin said, 
that he that will sacrifice freedom for safety is deserving of neither. If you'll sacrifice freedom for safety, you are deserving of neither. And I'm not trying to stir up people to take up guns to fight today. But what I am saying is that there is an instrument, a tool called prayer, that when you implement it, when you start to exercise your God-given right to pray, prayers of imprecation, which David prayer, uh, which David prayed in the Old Testament, which many men of God prayed in the Old Testament, Isaiah prayed them, and in the New Testament, the apostles prayed them. When you start to pray those prayers of imprecation against the deeds of the ungodly, it actually tips the bucket of God's vengeance over so that the flood of God's justice starts to flood the, the societies of the earth and things begin to turn. Things begin to turn. I will die for the gospel. I absolutely will die for the gospel. I'll die for, for the word of God. But I'm also not going to let it just play, roll over and play dead. Let the devil stamp, trample on me and let it get to the point where I have to put my life on, uh, on the line for the gospel in places that are free, like Canada and the United States of America. And then people say, well, in the last days, you know, God said these things would come. They, first of all, the Bible doesn't say in the last days that we have to, I'm not even gonna get into that. But, I think that for far too long, we've had this image of like Jesus on a swing set in heaven and he's just going back and forth and he's got doves flying around his head and he's got a nice little flowered crown on his head and then one of the angels is pushing him back and forth and back and forth and he's got one of those fidget spinners in his hand because he's just trying to keep himself calm that's not the image of Jesus that John had on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1. The Bible says his eyes are like a flame of fire. His face is like uh, the sun shining in its brilliance. His hair is white as wool. His feet like burnished bronze. And out of his mouth proceeded, not a dove, a double-edged sword. He's got eyes of fire. He's an all-consuming fire. He's not just love. He's not just mercy. There comes a point where you cross a line with God. When you start to bring, you start to arrest pastors, you start to uh, put in measure rec uh, restrictions against how people are to worship God. I'm going to go through in the Old Testament and the New Testament what God does. But there comes a point where God does something. He will not allow his bride to be slapped around for long. The Bible says, I tell you the truth, he will avenge them speedily. And there will be a day in Revelation where the Bible uh, defines the tribulation period as a day where God's judgment is fully released against the ungodly worldwide, against those that hate God and don't obey the gospel of God. But I'm going to show you from the scriptures that we see types and shadows of that ultimate judgment to be fulfilled in the great tribulation, fulfilled in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, and I'm even going to show you examples in modern history where that has happened. Psalm 94, I want to read this. So Christianity is not laying over and letting the devil just slap the church around as, at will and just saying, well, we, we got to take it. This must be our lot in life. That's not, that's not why God instituted prayer. Why would God tell us to pray 
For, you know, the Bible says we are to love our enemies. But then there's God's enemies. Like the Bible says, God, he said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. I will repay. So we love our enemies. We don't take up guns and, and start shooting people. We don't take up knives and go to war. We don't. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are spiritual and they're used for the pulling down of these strongholds. Remember this, life is spiritual. Everything that's being done on the earth is the result of something that's happening in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. The wicked, certain wicked politicians that are putting in place motions to inhibit worship in churches and restraining. I mean, there was a time where they said you can't sing in church. Who are you? Oh man, to say what I am to do, I'd rather obey God than man. I'm not going to stop singing in church because some guy with a laminate badge told me not to sing in church. God said, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Nobody can resign that, that commandment. Nobody can override it. And so these people, wicked politicians, people, governors, kings, whatever, that have set their scope to oppress the church and to oppress the people of God on the earth in this day and in this age, globally, you have to see, I don't, I don't hate them. I hate the power that is behind them, that is manipulating and that is influencing them to make these decisions. J Jesus didn't hate Judas, but the Bible says that Satan entered into the heart of Judas to do, to betray Jesus. The Bible says that Satan steered up David to census, to bring a census on Israel. So Satan steers people up to do his bidding on the earth. So I don't hate the people. I don't hate my governor. I don't hate my premier. I don't hate my president or my prime minister. You shouldn't hate them. The Bible says you should actually pray for them because they're under the influence, the manipulative control of unseen forces that are getting them to make such laws that are contradictory to God's highest law. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Don't direct your anger at a politician. Direct your anger at the devil by equipping yourself with the armor of God and doing spiritual warfare. Which spiritual warfare is not blowing a shofar. Spiritual warfare is not blowing a trumpet. Spiritual warfare is not jumping around in purple leotards doing interpretive dancing. Spiritual warfare isn't singing songs of worship over your city. Spiritual warfare is doing this. Father, I take responsibility for my generation. I understand that unless I do something partnered with you, that nothing will get done on the earth. I know that your eyes are going to and fro throughout the whole world seeking one who's loyal to your, to your, your will that you might show yourself strong on his behalf. I make myself available to you. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to secure atomic power with God to go out into the highways and byways and through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, tear down the strongholds and the influences of Satan that have been set up on people's minds and people's spirits and one by one, individual by individual, region by region, city by city, province by province, state by state, until this nation from 
sea to shining sea is one. I am not going to stop. I'm going to not, I'm going to lay aside my will. I'm going to lay aside my agenda. I'm going to lay aside what I like to do, what I envision my life to be like, and I'm going to take up my cross, deny myself, fully follow you until the end. And the Bible says, when you do that, you have a heart like David who will do all God's will and God will use you. That's what spiritual warfare is. Don't hide. Don't hide behind shofars and hide behind blowing a trumpet and hide behind all these things. Thinking you're, you know, satisfying that religious craving in you, thinking that you're actually doing something. You're not doing nothing. The devil's laughing. You know when the devil starts to poo his pants? You know when the devil starts to get worried? You know when the devil starts to lose his mind and start to bite his nails till he's got nothing left? It's when people start to say, I will be anointed with fresh oil. And by that anointing of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The anointing doesn't come on you so that you can feel good and get goosebumps and have the hair behind your neck stand. The anointing comes on you to preach deliverance to the captives. When you start to win people, soul by soul, over to the Lord, you find that a nation is changed based on what happens to the local families. A nation could be changed by impacting local families. As the family goes, so the nation will go. So you win families to the Lord. The Bible says great multitudes came to the Lord. The Bible says that um, you and your household shall be saved when households start to come to the Lord. That's what shifts the course of a nation. So we pray. We pray. Look at Psalm 94. This is how God reveals himself to be in Psalm 94. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs. Shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the wicked. How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? That's a prayer of imprecation. It's when the writer of Psalm 94 said, I've had enough. Enough is enough. I'm not going to tolerate the evil in my nation. You know, tolerating evil is partnering with evil. Do you know how many, I forget who wrote it, but during the Holocaust, there was a man who, who said uh, he was alive in Poland in that day, and, Pol- and uh, Hitler started to come and arrest certain people, groups and stuff, and he started, he came for, um, he came for the, uh, he, he came first for the, for the Jews, but he said, since I wasn't a Jew, I didn't do anything. Then he started to come for, for, for Catholics. But he said, since I wasn't a Catholic, I didn't do anything. Then finally, he came for his specific denomination. And he said, I had no one else to speak for me. All the other ones had left. I was the only one left. Don't wait till you're backed into the corner and there's nothing else to do before you start to speak up, before you start to pray these prayers, before you start to call on God who said, I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not of. So anyone that doesn't give, it, give up in pursuing the hurt of the church, they come under another category. I said it before, there's a difference between falling into sin and being captive to sin and then being the one that is partnering with hell in pushing sin in a nation. There's the sinner and then there's the wicked one. When a sinner sins, 
The curse of the law naturally comes to him. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through the end of the chapter. God doesn't have to curse that person. God doesn't have to release judgment on that person. Because of the law, the spiritual laws in place that God has put, especially in Deuteronomy 28, when a man or a woman sins deliberately, intentionally, habitually, naturally, those things are going to come on them that are listed out in Deuteronomy 28, which says fevers, mildew, boils, poverty, the heavens shut up over their life. But, when the wicked don't give up and the wicked don't relent and the wicked don't turn away and they're deliberately, they know they're coming against God. If you think people on the earth that are trying to push a wicked agenda on the earth today, this globalist system that uh, has the Antichrist handprint all over it, if you think that a lot of them or most of them are ignorant of it, they don't even know what they're doing, you're greatly mistaken. A lot of them are, have willfully handed themselves over to Satan. Have willfully, they know exactly that they're coming against the upright, coming against the righteous way of doing things. They are defying God, just like Goliath. He defied the living God. There are many people that are willingly defying God on the earth. And I'm sure there are many that have received warning, not once, not twice, but maybe even three times, to back down, and they don't relent. Listen to Psalm chapter, Psalm 7. Listen to this, Psalm 7. Psalm 7, if you're just tuning, out, tuning in now, you'd do a great help to me if you share the broadcast. It's going to open up a lot of people's eyes today, to wake up. Psalm 7, verse 7. Let's do verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. Verse 10. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, but God is angry, not with sinners every day. God is angry with the wicked every day. God so loved the world of sinners. God demonstrated his love towards sinners God is not angry at sinners. God's door of favor, God's door of salvation, the ark door is still open to receive sinners unto himself. He dined with the sinners. The sinners came and heard him gladly. So this is not talking about sinners, people bound by the devil. This is talking about people partnered with the devil. God is angry with the wicked every day. Holy indignation. The same way he looked at the Pharisees in Matthew 23, which the Pharisees, they knew the signs that the Messiah would have when he came. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew full well. The Bible never even contests that they didn't believe Jesus. It just says they rejected Jesus. The Bible says when they handed Jesus over to be crucified, they did it because of envy, not because they, of blasphemy. They accused them of blasphemy, but that wasn't it. They knew who Jesus was deep down inside. There was an inner witness. This guy's not blowing smoke. And there were certain Pharisees like Nicodem Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night and wanted to inquire more and Nicodemus ended up getting saved later on you see that but most a lot of the Pharisees had that same convicting voice in them but they hated Jesus because he was more popular than the religious system that they had he was taking the people away from their religious control that they had so when Jesus looks to them he doesn't say oh you know I'm gonna pray that your eyes be open he actually says you think that you see and so your sin remains and he says woe unto you Pharisees Woe unto you hypocrites. Woe unto you teachers of the law. 
And he says, you outwardly look nice and are adorned beautifully, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of extortion and you know it. He, was, he didn't say, uh, let me show compassion to them. He pronounced woes on them because they were the wicked that were holding the Jewish people in oppression and in chains and in infliction to their own lies and deceit. They tried to turn people away from Jesus. God is angry at the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he'll sharpen. So what did Jesus do when he walks into the temple? He sees what they did and he fashions a whip. If you think that Jesus is all just like a hippie, just like going around, peace, bro, love, bro. If you think that he's like some hippie, some 70s hippie that's just totally out of his mind and just high on life. Hey, guys, nah, keep on. Whatever you want. At the end, love wins. You're greatly deceived. You fashioned your own image of God and you're in idolatry because that's not how God is. Jesus, who's full of grace, full of truth, the one who, who told the, the, the woman in adultery, I, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Yet that same one is standing by the temple one day and he's fashioning a whip, a braided cord, and he starts to make that cord. And he doesn't go into the temple and say, oh, what a shame. He takes the whip and he drives the money changers out of the temple. And the seats of those who sold doves and the tables of the money changers, he overturned them. And he whipped them, telling them to leave. Saying, this is my house, my father's house. And it is to be called the house of prayer. But you have deliberately, intentionally made it a den of thieves. Because of the love of money, it caused them to set up a wicked system to feed off people's finances. What do you think the pharmaceutical industry is at large? I'm not saying your local pharmacist is wicked, but I'm saying the people at the top, these drug companies, Pfizer, Johnson, Johnson, Moderna, do you think they care about you being well? Do you think they care about your health? Absolutely not. They're a publicly traded company. They want to make more finances. If they don't have enough drugs pumped through the system, they don't have good quarterly reports. If they don't have good quarterly reports, their uh, stock is going to plummet. If their stock plummets, their share, major shareholders lose a lot of money. People don't know this. Do you think private hospitals all across the U.S., do you think... Do you think they do well when their beds are empty? Or do you think they do better when their beds are full? So you have to understand, your local pharmacist is not wicked. But the people at the top that are pulling the strings, they're not interested in you being well. Why do you think there's such a push against the gospel? Because the gospel tells people you can be healed for free. The gospel tells people you can be delivered from depression for free. The gospel tells people you can be set free for free. You can obtain freedom, not by any gold or silver, but by the precious blood of a lamb that was shed without spot, without wrinkle, that was shed for the purchase price of redemption. We can easily come out of the dominion of darkness and come into the dominion of God's kingdom. A kingdom where health and strength and, and abundance lives. So these people hate that. That's why they want to get rid of any nation that employs communism. The first thing they do is try and rip 
the Bible out of people's hands. Because if you have the Bible out of, in people's hands, they're never going to look to government as God. They're not going to look at the, to the government as the source of supply. They're not going to look to the government as the source of health care. They're going to look to God for those things, which is the right place to look. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, God will sharpen. So listen to this. God gives the wicked an opportunity to turn back. God gives the wicked, because people watch this, and they're like, well, what about Paul? You know, what about Paul? He went persecuting the church. and Yes, God gave Saul an opportunity to turn, and he turned. And actually, if you read Acts chapter 9, you see Paul has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Why do you persecute me? So Saul was going after the church. Jesus saw any attempt to go after the church as an attempt to come after himself. And he didn't tolerate it. He went and found Saul. Said, hey, cut it out. Turn, repent. I am absolutely convinced that if Saul, who had freedom of will, freedom of choice, who had the ability... To have, he could have had that vision and said, you know what, to heck with that. I'm still not going to follow God. I'm, I pretty much, I'm absolutely convinced that he wouldn't have lived very long. And I have proof of it from, uh, from the, the book of Acts. He wouldn't have lived very long. He would have been slaughtered. He would have been taken out. Because he had wreaked havoc on the church and he was preventing the church from fulfilling the great commission. The Bible says those that prevent the message from going out, they are actually adding the full measure of their sins to the point where destruction is released from heaven. That's in the book of Thessalonians, I believe. They have filled up the full measure of their sins and destruction will come on them to the uttermost. So I'm convinced had Paul not turned at that moment, it would have released judgment on his life, but he turned. So the Bible says if he does, if he does not turn back, God will sharpen his sword and he will bend his bow and make it ready. He'll prepare for himself instruments of death and he'll make arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. He conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He has made a pit and dug it out, but has fallen into the same ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing will come down on his own crown. So that tells you, the ditch that the, that the wicked dig up for the, for the righteous to fall into, God makes a way so that the righteous are preserved and spared of that trouble and the wicked actually have the same trouble they devised against the righteous to fall on their own heads. I want to go through, before I move into the New Testament, Old Testament examples of God's vengeance being released on the wicked. Number one, of Abraham and Abimelech. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1. Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man, Abimelech, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. 
But Abimelech said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And she even herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. God says, yes, I know that you did this thing in the integrity of your heart, for I have also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So now, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you don't restore her, know that you will die, you and all who are yours. So God shows up to Abimelech's, how, uh, Abimelech's room while he's dreaming and says, you're a dead man. You've touched, you've stretched out your hand against the Lord's anointed. Your days are numbered unless you turn back. Abimelech did, restored Sarah to Abraham and said, now pray for me. Abimelech was prayed for by Abraham and the Bible says he was healed and his whole household was healed and even his woman who had previously not been able to bear children started to bear children. That happened in Genesis chapter 20. So right there you can see the release of God's imminent quick judgment against people that even in his innocence stretched out his hand to harass Abraham who the Bible says if we are Christ we are Abraham's seed they stretched out their hand against Abraham, took Abraham's wife from him, and that Abraham didn't even have to pray. Remember, the Bible says, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm, for they are the apple of mine eye. And he that touches the apple of my eye, I will shake my fist on them. When you're in covenant with God, you don't even have to. <laughs> and people stretch out their hand to make your life miserable and a living hell on the earth. You almost sometimes don't even have to pray. God will... God will show up and warn them, quit. This far you've come, no further shall you come. Abimelech relented and it spared his house. Number two, Moses and Pharaoh. Exodus 4.23, God says, if you don't let my people go, then I will kill the firstborn of Egypt. So you see that, what 1 Samuel 2 says, the Lord that killeth and the Lord that maketh alive. God said, if you don't release my people Israel, if you keep harassing them and keep oppressing them, I will kill the firstborn of all that are in Egypt. Exodus 11.1, 1, I will bring one more plague. And afterward, God said, Pharaoh will let, will let you go. Exodus 12.12, 12, against all the gods of Egypt, I'm about to execute judgment. So in the release of these plagues, he wasn't going after the people of Egypt. He was executing judgment against the God of Egypt. And in doing that, the stronghold of the devil on that region was broken and then the people and Pharaoh himself let them go freely. They actually urged the people of Israel, leave and leave quickly, lest something worse come on us. You see that in Exodus chapter 1, let me read this. So I'm going to show you something that God doesn't tolerate from the Bible. From the Bible, this is what God does not tolerate. There's a point, there is a line that people can cross over. There is a line. I'm telling you there is a line. And I'm going to show you in the New Testament that that line hasn't been blurred. It's still very much there. Listen to this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us shrewd, deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war, they also join our enemies and fight against them and so go up out of the land. I, I want to stop there because I think it's very interesting that Pharaoh, the wicked king of Egypt, even himself, full of the devil, acknowledged that the people of God were stronger and mightier than his own army and his own people. You know what that tells you? The devil knows that 
he's outnumbered. The devil knows that he doesn't have power against the church. The devil knows that his weapons are futile and his efforts are useless against the church because Jesus already made a prophecy. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the devil knows that he's outnumbered. He knows there's more on your side than there is against than there is on his side. He knows that he, you have more resources. You have more power at your disposal than he can ever even hope to secure on his end. He knows that. That's why. Why do you think? In the last 18 months, there were so many prophecies that came forth that God, was, God is going to move in um, revivals across the land and he's going to raise up tent evangelism and that mass crusades are going to hit the earth all around the world like never before. That was in 2019, 2018. People were prophesying that. Many reputable prophets were saying that. And then all of a sudden, 2020, this happens. You think it's by accident? You think it's coincidental? Absolutely not. The devil understood. If I... If I, uh, if I don't do anything about that word, if I don't wage a war against that word, then people are going to come out of my kingdom, out of my hold, my, my grip in record numbers. So he moved to do uh, what he did in the last 18 months with COVID. Because he understood, I can't stop the church from doing it. But what I can do is intimidate them and get ministers and get believers to just back down and say you know i'll wait till this passes over you can either wait till this passes over or you can pray and move to cause this the waters and the tides of this sea to turn in the opposite direction i'm going to tell you and this is a prophecy i'll tell you i, I prophesy this in the name of jesus christ that what the enemy intended for evil to try and stop that word from coming to fruition from its fulfillment his very efforts are going to be the tool God uses to push the gospel across the four corners of the earth. Because I, I, I've read this book on the Welsh Revival. Um, I forget who wrote it, but he talks about the three precursors that have occurred before every single revival in the history of the church. Number one, government corruption revealed in record numbers. We're seeing that now. Number two, there was a, a, a great apostasy, meaning people left the church in record numbers. We've seen that happen in the last 20, 30 years. And then number three is there was an all-time fear of death that was on the people. Crippling fear of death that came on people. Those three things always preceded every major revival. What the devil tried to stop the plan of God with actually is going to be used to release the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And you're going to be a part of it in the name of Jesus. But look at this. Moving on. Exodus chapter 1. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them. So the devil works to impl implement systems that prevent the gospel from going out because he knows that there's about to be a multiplication of the church, an increase in the church. Multitudes coming back into the fold of God. So he deals shrewdly to try and stop that from coming to pass. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more the people grew. 
And that tells you even in the midst of things like this. And I've known, I know people that didn't shut their church down, people that took a stand for the gospel and for the word of God in these last 18 months. And I can tell you their story, they have multiplied, they have increased as this ministry. We've done crusades in the midst where it was like social distancing, vax passports, no, no gather, social, um, uh, limits on, on outdoor gatherings. We did a crusade. And I can tell you that we've seen every Every aspect of this ministry jumped supernaturally, increased astronomically because we refused to just bow. We refused to compromise. We went, we pushed our hand to the plow all the more and pushed harder than we've ever pushed before. And God blessed us for it. And that's been the story of many ministries. Our own, my own church in, in Montreal, I mean, has blown up because instead of Backing down, we rose up to the occasion. So the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. That tells you in your nation, I don't even care if you're in Australia, and the things are worse than anywhere else on this planet called earth. There is a plan that God will give you to multiply, even in the midst. While God's working out the whole deliverance and the whole restoration of freedom and the whole uh, overturning of the deeds of the wicked, there's a plan even in the midst to increase. There's a plan God wants to put in your heart to grow, even in the midst. Don't wait. Don't wait till you see the, the total freedom come before you start putting your hand to the plow. There is a plan of increase God has for you now to flourish. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And then they started to go after the children, the firstborn of all the, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And then if you read in... Uh, Exodus 2, 23, it says, Now it happened in the process of time. The king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God looked on the children of Israel and acknowledged them, and he sent Moses to deliver the people. And remember, when they came out of Egypt, they came out with lives, with um, silver and gold. There was none feeble amongst all their tribe. They were strong. They had, ran, they had ransacked the Egyptians. They had ambushed them. The Bible says that the Egyptians uh, showed favor to the Israelites and started to give them gold and articles of silver. They didn't leave broken and bruised. They left rich and they left strong and they left hung, uh, healthy and the bible says that when the sea opened for them as they crossed the sea the same sea that opened for the israelites is the same sea in the waters that destroyed israelites and the israeli enemies so you see god didn't just bring vengeance on the the egyptians through the plagues he brought ultimate Vindication to Israel when he swallowed up the armies of Egypt, the very ar armies that had sworn to keep Israel in the bondage of oppressive work, to overwork them with rigor. Those very armies got swallowed up. God vindicates. God is the God of vengeance. Romans 12, the Bible says, pray for your enemies. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. For in doing so, you shall reap coals of fire upon their heads. Forgive room for God's vengeance. Leave room for God's vengeance. See, if we as the church just took up guns and started to fight, that would be, uh, we would only release what we can do in terms of vengeance. And it's not much. But if we pray 
like the people of Israel did. They cried out to God in their bondage. God releases vindication and vengeance in proportion to His ability. Number two. Number two is Moses and Pharaoh. Number three, David and Goliath. Goliath was mouthing off, defying, cursing God, cursing the people of God. You know, I'm reminded of a governor in the United States who, he, um, he said when in April of 2020, the church got together and fasted and prayed that the COVID case count would go down and hospitalizations go down and all that. And it happened. And on Easter weekend, it happened. There was a great decrease of all those things. And um, this governor gets up in the next press conference and he says, I want you to know, God did not lower the numbers. Jesus didn't lower the numbers. Prayer did not lower the numbers. We, the people of X state, lowered the numbers. That governor, within 12 months, lost his job, was convicted, or I don't know if he was convicted, but he was charged with sexual assault, was the object of scrutiny from the very networks that praised him 12 months prior. And... Uh, that's right, some people know who I'm talking about. Was the object of, of, of public embarrassment. And the people that declared him to be a hero, 12 months later, declared him to be a zero. That shows you. You speak, you stretch out your hand against God. You defy God. You start to stay, you start to rise up in pride. And try to rob God's glory. The Bible says, my glory I will not give to another. You fall into a different category of people. And there are people you pray, pray for. There's people you pray for. You should pray for all kings and governors and all that. But then there's people that you pray against. As David did. As the early church did. As I'm going to show you in the moments to come. Because God doesn't deal with all people the same Number three, David and Goliath. David comes, knocks his head off, and got a great victory for, for Israel that day. Number four, 2 Kings 7, the officer of the king oppressed uh, Elisha, uh, opposed Elisha, opposed the word of the Lord. The very officer of the king, the next day, he saw the fulfillment of a prophecy, but the people trampled him underfoot and he died. He was in opposition to the word of the Lord for that day and that age. He ended up getting wiped out. Second Chronicles 20, three armies arrayed against the people of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that Jehoshaphat prayed and cried out to the Lord. The Lord set ambush against the people of Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir so that they were confused and began to fight one another. And they destroyed one another to the point where Israel didn't even have to lift a sword. They killed themselves. I tell you in the name of Jesus, in whatever nation you're watching from, Every wicked plot and plan that wicked people have put in place to try and stop the advancement of the church in your nation in the name of Jesus Christ. Confusion comes on their, on their, on their hearts and on their minds. They'll begin to fight one another. One department of health will fight the department of safety. They'll fight each other until the, their obvious oblivion it becomes obvious. 
God sent confusion on the camp of the, the Israeli enemies. Number six, 2 Chronicles 32, Sennacherib says, In what confidence is this in which you trust? Is the God of your nation able to save me from the hand? From my hand, as the God of the other nations were able to save them from my hand? None of them were able to deliver them from my hand and from the hand of my fathers. What makes you think you're different? Sennacherib mouthed off. What happened to Sennacherib? God released one angel that killed 185,000 people of his choice soldiers. And the scripture says that he returned to his own homeland, shame-faced, and his own children when he came home in the temple of the God that he served, struck him down with a sword and killed him. God dealt harshly with him. Number seven, Esther and Haman. Esther uh, f- prays and fasts because she finds out through Mordecai that Haman had a plan to annihilate the Jewish people, to perform a holocaust before the holocaust, to kill everybody that called on the name of, God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He hated the Jewish people and wanted to remove their, their presence from the earth. So he stretched his hand against the people of God. He, made, he devised a scheme and built a gallow to hang every single Jewish person on. Esther prays, the Jewish people pray and fast. What happens? The very weapon that Haman built to destroy the Jewish people was the very weapon used to bring Haman's life to an end. That's why the Bible says, no weapon formed against the righteous will prosper. And in every tongue that rises up against you, you can condemn. So it's not only the weapon won't prosper, it's the same weapon that the devil will use in your generation to prosper against you. You can actually use the weapon of your mouth to turn it against him. The same gallow that was going to be used to hang the Jewish people was used to hang Haman publicly. Daniel in the lion's den. They throw him in a lion's den. The same den that was supposed to kill lion. The same lion, ravenous lion, hungry lions that were going to kill Daniel were the same lions that ended up killing the people that threw Daniel in the lion's den in the first place. Daniel was supposed to be those lions' meal. Instead, his persecutors became the meal that fed the lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were tossed into the burning fiery furnace because they refused to bow and compromise. What happened? The very furnace that was supposed to burn them up burnt up the people that tossed them in. But as for them, they walked around in that furnace, untouched, not smelling like smoke. The only thing that burnt off them was the ropes that bound them. And the Bible says there was a fourth man that stood by Daniel, uh, by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what that tells you? If you'll refuse to bow, even if you're tossed into the furnace, even if there's a persecution that comes, God will be with you. And the Lord who is with you, He'll deliver you. He'll keep you. He'll protect you. He'll cover your head in the day of battle. He'll put a shield of faith around you to extinguish every fiery dart of the enemy. He'll be like a wall of fire around you. And the Bible says, those that were incensed against you and contended against you, I, the Lord, will contend against them. And they will be as a non-existent thing. For the wicked indeed flourish for a time, but it's only so that they can be cut down. Cut down forever. Those are Old Testament scriptures. I'm going to show you um, 
Psalm 35, verses 4 to 8. This is powerful. This also confirms what I'm saying. And remember I said God didn't change. God didn't like, God didn't like revamp his MO. He's not, he's not changed his uh, way of operation. He's the same. This is how he still works like this today. Psalm 35, verse 4 to 8. Let those who let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Let the angel of the Lord chase them down. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without a cause they have hidden their net for me in the pit, which they have dug without a cause for my life. Let the destruction come upon them unexpectedly and let the net that he has hidden catch himself into the very destruction, so let him fall. So that tells you when people, for the, for the cause of advancing their own wallets, their own finances, their own fame, their own fortune, their own power, suppress the church and make life difficult for the church, for people to just go to church and attend church. The Bible says that God releases the angel of destruction on them, the angel of the Lord, that makes the way of those people dark and slippery and the nets that they build to trap the righteous is actually used to trap them up. The Bible says very clearly, the pit that you have dug, ye shall inhabit yourself, and, and um, the stone that you roll on them shall be rolled back on you. Hallelujah. The Bible says, he that breaks through the wall shall be bitten by serpents. The Bible says there is a wall of covenant around us. Anyone that tries to breach that covenant and breach through the wall of that covenant the covenant of God's protection. Anyone that tries to breach the hedge of protection around us, the scripture says there are serpents that will come and fasten on them. And serpents represent, represent curses. It's a very dangerous thing to stretch out your hand against the church because in doing that, the Bible says the, house of the, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. By doing that, you yourself release on yourself divine judgment. That nobody can escape. And I'm going to show you how in the New Testament it didn't change. I said it before. God didn't change from the old to the new. He didn't put in a new, a new program that now he doesn't operate like he did back then. He's not reevaluating his measures and his methods. He's not rebranding himself. Acts chapter 12. Listen to this. Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to bring him before the people at the Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Peter's delivered. Skip down to verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, because they, uh, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to the people. 
the same Herod that stretched out his hand to harass those from the church. The people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. The Bible says Herod took James, the less, had him beheaded, saw that it pleased the Jewish people, that he was pretty much solving their problem, which was this church that was rising. So he proceeded further to take Peter, put him in jail with the purpose of killing him the next day. God sends an angel, not only to deliver Peter, but then... Actually, if you find, you find out in Acts chapter 12, if I had read this whole story, that the people that put Peter in prison ended up dying, ended up getting killed. Herod put them to death. The ones that guarded the prison, put them, put him, uh, Herod put them to death. And then at the end of the chapter, it says that the Herod that stretched out his hand to harass, from the church, harass those from the church, God stretched out his hand against Herod to harass Herod. Sent an angel. The Bible's uh, history shows, I think it's in Josephus' account, that worms began to um, rise up from Herod's intestinal tracts. And he was eaten by worms from the inside out. And they started to come out of his body, out of his mouth. He died from within. Struck him at the core of his being. Took him three days to die an excruciating, painful death. Herod's plan was to prevent the church from growing anymore from where it had come. Because remember, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's sown, it's small, but then it starts to grow and it becomes big. They started to see the effects of this unstoppable church growing. So Herod tries to put a stop to it. And what did God do? Put a stop to Herod's life. Because God will easily take out the wicked that are trying to prevent the gospel from going out for the gospel to go out. Verse 24 says, the word of God grew and multiplied. So we see Herod's plans failed and God, taking him out of the way, made sure that the word of God never stopped growing and never stopped multiplying. Number two, Acts chapter 13. Skip on to the next chapter. And so when they had been sent out, they went through the island to Paphos and they found a, sword in, a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So the Sergius Paulus, an, inter, an intelligent man, a proconsul, wants to hear the word uh, from Paul's mouth. He wants, to, he wants to hear the gospel. He wants to know what the gospel is. He wants to hear what Paul's message was. So Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the church, from the faith. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas and said, I just pray that one day you'll be sensitive to these words that I'm speaking right now. No, quite the opposite. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Not everyone in life is a son of God. Not everyone in life is, is, um, is just neutral, walking around. There are some people who have made, God, uh, who have made Satan their father. 
and his plans and his desires, they desire to do. Elemis was one of those people. Paul said, he identified him. He said, you full of all deceit and you fraudster. You son of the devil and you enemy of all righteousness. This is Acts chapter 13. Verses, one, uh, verses 6 to 12. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind, not seeing the time. Not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The proconsul, when he saw what had been done, believed, astonished at the, at the teachings of the Lord. So that shows you someone who is resisting God's plan of, uh, God's gospel plan of bringing the gospel to Sergius Paulus. Tried to get in the way, tried to stop him from getting saved. Stop, tried to stop the progression of the gospel message getting into more people's hearts. God dealt differently with that man. Bible says that when the judgment of God came on him, which by the way, my question to you is, is this Old Testament or is this New Testament? This is the New Testament. My question to you is what? Was, did, did God? See, the, the words that Paul used, before I get into my question to you, the words that Paul used was, you son of the devil, you you. You full of all deceit. You who make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. So he wasn't talking to someone who, you know, he, he just didn't believe in the gospel. And so, you know, he had his doubts. We're talking about somebody who made it his aim, his objective in life to stop people. He was full of all deceit. What was the deceit? He was trying to get people away from the words of faith. He was, he was like the gates of hell trying to prevail against the advancement of the church. But I want to remind you, Jesus gave a sure word of prophecy that I will build my church and the gates of hell can try all they want. Anyone that gets in the way of the advancement of the church, they get in the way of a Holy Ghost bulldozer that will flatten them so that the message of the gospel can be... Can, can go out. I wrote this in my, on my Twitter just before. I said, all who have their scopes on the church in an effort to eliminate her, all who have set their scopes on the church in an effort to eliminate her have been eliminated throughout history. Stretching out your hand to harass those in the church has always been a bad idea. Herod stricken with worms. Elemis goes blind. Number three, and I'll get into it. Alexander, the coppersmith. The Bible says Saul handed him over to the, to the devil, to Satan, for his own destruction. Saul handed him over to, to Satan for his destruction. I, my evangelist mentor, Tiff Shuttlesworth, he was in India preaching. As he was preaching, these men, one guy comes in with a machete in his hand, and he was marching to the front of the auditorium, and he, went, he was going to kill evangelist Tiff. Evangelist Tiff asked the Lord, Lord, what do I do? Because he said, I'm ready to go down for the gospel, but you're going to have to fight for it. What do I do? Do I stop the meeting? The Lord said, just keep preaching and I'll deal with him. So he kept preaching. As he was preaching, it was like a Louisville slugger, an invisible force just knocked the guy right on his rear end, fell flat. 
Couple of minutes later, another guy comes in with a machete to check in on his other friend that didn't come out yet. Comes to the front, sees him on the floor, goes to try and strike Evangelist Tiff with his machete. Gets knocked over by the same Louisville slugger, the invisible angel that was knocking these guys one by one. Then a third guy comes in, same thing. Wha-pong. These people that were trying to distract, distract Evangelist Tiff and his message from going out to save those precious people in India actually served as a sign to the precious people of India that the God of Evangelist Tiff was the Most High God and it didn't hinder the meeting, it actually helped the meeting. Because they saw if this God is defending his own, we have to defend our idols. This God defends his own. Ended up having a great altar call that day. And then the fifth guy that came in saw the people stacked like bodies one-on-one. He ended up looking and said, he re-evaluated. He, he didn't come up. He dropped his machete and just waited for the end of the message and gave his life to the Lord. There was an evangelist that was preaching in Russia. And uh, right when the, uh, I think it was during Stalin's day, he was preaching and uh, he had an interpreter. Every time he would say, Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord, the interpreter would say, Stalin is king. Stalin is Lord. And so, all of a sudden, he feels a burst of tongues come from within. He starts praying in unknown tongues. And uh, while he was praying, like a minute in, the interpreter goes and sits down. And so he thought, maybe because she lost track of what I was saying, because I was praying in tongues, that perhaps she just gave up on the message. And he kind of got angry at her, but he didn't tell her to come up. He just said, I'm going to pray. I'll just pray in tongues to the end of the message. So he just prayed in tongues for like 10, 15 minutes. While he's praying in other tongues, the whole congregation, the whole people that had no clue of what the gospel was before this encounter, they came up and knelt at the altar and began to cry out to God. He finished the meetings, just continued praying in, in tongues. He goes, steps down to, the, to where the woman was, his interpreter, and he says, why did you leave me up there? You know, I couldn't finish the meeting the way I wanted to finish the meeting. And the woman said, you told me in perfect Russian to shut up and sit down and let me finish the meeting. So that lady was obviously a communist seed that was sent there to, to thwart the message, the pure message of the gospel, that Jesus is king, that he rose again, and instead put Stalin as king, and that Stalin was great, and Stalin was God, to get people away from the words of faith so that they wouldn't get saved. And what did God do? By, an inter- by the, uh, uh, the gift of tongues, suddenly... Coming on that evangelist, I think his name was Tommy Hicks, American evangelist, got the woman, told the woman to shut, shut up and sit down. And he finished the message and got the work done. And that interpreter went home shamefaced and failed her assignment. I tell you, every single demonic agent that is on the earth today, every satanic entity that is being used to suppress, oppress, prevent, hinder the gospel from getting out. Their assignments will fail. Their wickedness will come to an end. And the, and, and the, the, the plans that they've tried to use to circumvent the plan of God will actually be used to propagate, to, to act like a catalyst To bring about a mighty revival in these last days. 
in Jesus' name. And then you can go outside the Bible throughout history. There was an emperor who made it, I think in the third century, made it his point to bury every Christian and burn every Bible. He thought he had succeeded. And uh, he actually made, he fashioned a silver, silver plaque and put it on uh, at the, the gates of Rome for all to see. That he had removed Christianity from the earth and restored uh, worship to the gods. He was all pr proud of what he had done. Within a couple of years, first of all, there were many Christians that had hid. And um, they preserved Bibles. They preserved the, the faith and all that. God used them as a remnant and secured them, protected them. So he, he never actually removed Christianity from the earth. But within years, that emperor gets killed. And a new emperor arises named Constant Constantinople. Constantine, sorry. And Constantine ends up making Christianity the chief religion of all of Rome. And that's when the gospel had its greatest spread to the four corners of the earth. So you see, that guy, obviously stirred up by Satan to put an end to the Christian faith. God not only dealt with him, he was killed not too long after. But then God raised someone else up that showed favor to the Christian faith and used that man to connect the message of the cross to the four corners of the earth. Voltaire, in the 1700s, said the gospel would be an irrelevant thing in 100 years and there'd be no Bibles in circulation. Voltaire is dead and the very location he had his house is now the, the same location in Paris, France, that is the Bible publishing house for all of Europe. So he said the Bible would no longer be in the hands of thinking beings, thinking individuals, and would be an outdated, antiquated book within 100 years. And now, 100 years, 200 years later, I think it's 150 years later, the Bible publishing house purchased his very house and prints Bibles to go all throughout Europe. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. He sowed to the flesh, you'll from the flesh reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, though. You'll from the Spirit reap everlasting life. There has to be a time in your life where you say enough is enough. This whole broadcast today was to show you there's a God that you can call on for specific tasks to, to avenge the righteous in bringing vindication and vengeance on the deeds of the ungodly, on the works of the ungodly. We're not called as Christians... You know, people think our, our main job as Christians is just to be kind and uh, be stepped on all our life. We're not to be stepped on. Jesus wasn't stepped on. Jesus, they couldn't kill him until his assignment was finished. The church's assignment isn't finished. Anything that, anybody that sets its scope on the church, they've made a decision. Anybody, any, any entity, anybody, that makes a decision to rise up against the church and contend against the church has made a decision to fall. Any single institution, government, politician that has made a decision to rise up against the church has made a decision to fall. Because the Bible says those who are incensed against you and those that contend against you, I will contend against them. And I will make them like a non-existent thing. Indeed, you will look for them, but you won't be able to find them. The Bible says, in righteousness ye shall be established. 
Let me read that. Isaiah 54, and then I'll, I'll finish and we'll pray. I'm going to pray for everybody's nation. We're going to pray that the flood of the ungodly, the flood of wickedness that's been released on nations of the earth, not only does it stop, and not, not only does the flood and the, 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 the flow cease, but that the tide would turn today. Isaiah 54, listen to this. Indeed, they will assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you will fall for your sake. They will assemble against you. The Bible doesn't promise a life without challenges. The Bible doesn't say you're going to preach the gospel and everybody's going to love you. There will be those that hate you. They will assemble against you, but the Bible says they will fall for your sake. Every attempt, every blueprint that hell is drawing up right now to keep your nation down, to almost act like an iron curtain, a spiritual iron curtain, to keep the gospel from reaching the hearts of people. Because the gospel is no gospel at all until it's in the hearts of people. That's why angels can't preach the gospel. It takes people to minister from our mouths to other people's hearts the message of the gospel. Anything that's standing in the way from the gospel getting around your nation in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, prepare your instruments of death against those things. Any human being that has deliberately and intentionally lined up with hell's plans and agenda to prevent the kingdom of God from advancing in your nation in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray, aim your bow at their faces. I ask you, if they don't relent, if they don't stand down, Lord, let their days be few and let another take their office in Jesus' name. There's far too many people that need to get saved. There's far too much work to be done. The day is at hand. There's, heaven is too real. Hell is too hot. The gospel needs to get out. Time is too short and eternity is too long. And our responsibility is too great for us to stay here and do nothing. I pray, Lord, in nations on this earth where there is no way, they're called closed nations, unreached nations, I pray, raise up men and women filled with the Holy Ghost and fire that will go into those nations. And every adversary, just like Paul said, there are great and effective doors that have been opened unto me, and there are many adversaries that stand in my way. I pray, Lord, that none of those adversaries would prevail. But Father, even as your word says, they will rise up against you, but be defeated before your face. Just like you said in Joshua 1, that no man will be able to stand before us all the days of our life. Father, as we go out, carrying your gospel message, being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace to go where you tell us to go. I ask you, Lord, anybody that stands in our way, if they don't stand down, flatten them by the bulldozer of the Holy Ghost. I ask you in Jesus' name, remove them. Every wicked politician in the nations represented of those watching online that have partnered with the devil in turning people away from the word of faith, in bringing an antichrist globalist system before its time. We're not in the great tribulation period yet. The church is still here on the earth 
And you said that we are to occupy until you come. And this antichrist spirit that's risen up in many that has attempted to implement this antichrist globalist agenda before its time, I ask you, Father, right now, let their plans burn up by fire in Jesus' name. All-consuming fire. Your word says that his fire goes before them and devours their, their enemies round about. Devour every enemy of the gospel in this day and this age. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.